Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting today to over 60 countries from the middle of the third most important centre in the world for entrepreneurs, startups, angels, VCs, incubators, Silicon Beach in California. And I want to thank uh, you for making us the number one business radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. Last week, I had the pleasure of speaking to about 100 business leaders in Willits in Northern California, and it was great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks to the people of Willits for making our stay so pleasurable. We took a day of rest and recreation and drove through the giant redwoods. It was fantastic. The trees are just amazing. I mean, they are so big. Um, you know, the, the big tree that I guess most people have seen where you can drive a car through the middle of it. I mean, that is just the biggest tree I've ever seen in my life. And you just drive straight through the middle. I get a great photograph. It's very cool. And then there's a house. These trees are so big that they carved a house inside the tree. And it's got um, a lounge room, a bedroom, um, and a kitchen. And it's quite quite roomy, much bigger than a caravan, all in a hollowed-out tree. It's mind-blowing. So if you haven't been up north, you go through San Francisco, keep going, and uh, up to the Redwoods, it's it's really brilliant. It was also great to be on uh, Ken Rakowski's Business Rockstars today. It's always fantastic to to be with Ken. I mean, he's, a, he's the ultimate professional, and... Uh, I recommend everybody who's in business should listen to Business Rockstars. It's on 150 radio stations across America, and it goes out to 36 million TV households, and you should not miss it. The guy's brilliant, and he has a whole host of fantastic guests, including me. <laughs> now, over the last 10 years, I've worked with startups and early-stage companies to help entrepreneurs develop and run successful businesses. And uh, this radio show is about providing news, information and tips that can help you be successful. You know, entrepreneurs need to wear a whole bunch of hats and we all can't be great at everything. So I want to help you identify the gaps in your expertise and give you advice that might fill them. Now, new research shows that the rate of failure of all businesses is now about 96%. And the failure rate of startups is around 99%. Research identifies that a major reason that businesses fail is lack of business knowledge of management. Only 11% of management have done any business courses or learning since they finished college, despite the tumultuous changes that have taken place. Extensive research and thousands of companies have identified 18 keys to the success of any business. This is a minimum of 18 keys to the success of any business. And to be successful, business leaders must have a good grasp of each of these keys. Over the past three weeks, we've discussed the first 10 keys. And rather than me repeat these, if you go to my website, which is bobpritchard.com, B-O-B-P-R-I-T-C-H-A-R-D.com, you can hear the discussion about these 10 keys. So let me begin with giving you the three keys that we'll discuss today. So if you've got a pen handy, now's the time to go and get it and write these down. And these are keys 11 through 13 of the 18 essential keys that will guarantee you the success of your business. Now key number 11 is to understand clearly what motivates your customers. Key number 12 is to differentiate yourself and your business from your competitors. And key number 13 is to add value to every customer interaction. And these are the minimum, three of the 18 minimum basic keys to a successful business. None of them are difficult, but you must know them. Otherwise, you will fall behind and you will likely fail. 
Now, if your business has a weakness with any of these 18 keys, we propose you sign up for my business and personal audit. Now, this analyzes every aspect of your business. There's about 450 questions which address every issue of your business, your competitors, your systems, your marketing, and so on. And the benefits from this 60-day audit can be totally game-changing. So the first key we're going to address today is key number 11, which is to clearly understand what motivates your customers. It's critical to not only know your primary, secondary and tertiary market segments, you must really know your customers and their lifestyles. You need to understand their psychographic profile. It's also critical to have great relationships with our customers internal and external. Now, this includes work associates as well as external customers, suppliers, distributors, and so on. The reality is that most of us don't know our customers all at all and make absolutely no effort to, to learn about them. You know, all of your internal and external customers are husbands or wives, fathers or mothers, and the better our knowledge and understanding of these people, the better the relationship. At my company, Market Force One Business Strategies, we make it a policy to know everything there is about our customers. We know their spouses' names, their kids' names, their favourite sport, their favourite restaurants, their religion, and that's just the start of it. In all, we've got about 24 categories of information that we try to subtly glean over a period of time from our clients. So if you want to have a good relationship, you certainly don't want to send Christmas cards to your Muslim customers. We need to show our customers utmost respect. You know, the same way um, Trump does. (laughs) Most of us certainly do not know how to listen to our customers. You know, we're too busy sitting there thinking about what we want to say to listen to what they've got to say. Our customers will tell us all we need to know in order to sell us, sell them our products as long as we listen to what they're saying to us. Not necessarily the words they use, but the meaning of what they're saying. Before you can really communicate, you need to know your customers, how they think, how they'll interpret the message that you're communicating to them. Now, simple things can make a huge difference. An exit from Toyota dealership showed that 100% of customers with kids, 100% of customers with kids experience difficulty making a purchase due to the distraction of their kids. 91% said these distractions prevented them making a sale. And 88% of Toyota sales staff said they lose sales because of kids. So this led to the introduction of Kids Corner, which resulted in 66 more quantifiable sales worth $2.7 million in one dealership alone in the first 12 months after Kids Corner was introduced. Pretty cool, huh? This brings me to key number 12 to guarantee your success in business, which is the necessity to differentiate yourself from your competitors. Your difference from your competition can be real or it can be suggested, made up, if you like. It doesn't have to be real, but it must connect directly with the customer's needs and requirements. Almost every business today has thousands of competitors, both online and bricks and mortar. And the problem is that similar businesses all do exactly the bloody same thing. They all look the same. They all smell the same. They all advertise the same. They all sell similar products in the same way. All their advertising looks the same. They're me too's. Why the hell should I go and shop with you? So this has led to a situation where 46 of 51 categories of product are commoditized. The public doesn't care whether they buy a Duracell battery or an EverReady battery. They're about the same, so they'll buy based on price. So take a look at your business. How are you different than all your competitors? 
you'll become successful by not doing what your competitors are doing. So we created the following program for one of our clients just starting out in real estate. And when somebody bought a house, we ensured that the house was absolutely scrubbed spotless. We had people go in there with toothbrushes. And the basics, milk, coffee, tea, sugar, spoons, mugs, were all in the house when they moved in. So they didn't have to say, I'd love a cup of coffee. Do you know where the coffee is? Don't have the faintest idea. Do you know where the cups are? They're in a box called kitchen. But there's a hundred fucking boxes called kitchen. So they were there available halfway through the afternoon when they'd been unpacking boxes and they're buggered. There was a cup of coffee for them. We had a couple of engraved glasses and a bottle of chilled champagne in an ice bucket waiting for them. If they had kids, let's say they had a little girl, we'd have a giant stuffed bear in the kids' room with a note saying, Hi, my name's Bernie the Bear, and I live here too. I hope you'll look after me. So when people moved in, wow, fantastic. And our client went from a startup to a billion-dollar-a-year business in just seven years. A billion from zero. So it's differentiation that makes your business memorable, gets people talking about you and not dependent on price. And it's not about how hard you work. It's not about how much money you have. It's about the power of your ideas. You have to be flexible. You have to be creative. You have to think outside the box. And to do that, you have to be bloody smart. Now, key number 13 to guarantee the success of your business is to add value at every touch point with a customer. Studies show that added value can increase sales by up to 43%. Adding value is a proven way to retain customers, to build loyalty and to get great word of mouth, which produces no-cost new customers. You know, it costs 15 times more to get a new customer than it does to retain an existing one. And studies show that added value can increase sales by up to 43%. So why the hell would you want to spend 15 times more? You'd have to have rocks in your head, wouldn't you? So adding value is just one of those 18 keys that are not going to cost you very much that are going to make the difference between your success and failure. So adding value is a proven way to retain customers, to build loyalty, get great word of mouth producing no-cost new customers, higher margins and profit. If I have to, I'll say it again because that's really critically important. An added value can take an infinite number of forms like adding an additional bonus product. You really don't want to do that because it's too expensive. An incentive, like 20% more product. A slightly larger container with more product in it. Helpful information. This is the best. Instruction classes. Say you're selling a piece of cooking appliance. Uh, uh, cooking appliance. Run cooking classes. Or run nutrition classes. You know, run things that don't cost you very much where you can get an instructor at very little cost and not only can you on-sell more stuff, but you give people value and they will talk about you. So anything that benefits the customer above and beyond the product itself is added value and you should pursue it. You know, my first Mercedes dealer would come and check the car after heavy rain on the pretext of ensuring that the car was safe. So I'd go and buy a new car. A month later, it would rain, and Paul, the Mercedes dealer, would turn up and say, I just want to check your wipers to make sure they're working. It's a bloody new car. (laughs) There's going to be nothing wrong with the wipers. Um, What he was really doing was building rapport and trust and brand equity so that when I had to renew the car, I was going to buy it from him. He also sent my son, who was, I don't know, five or something at the time that I um, 
got my first Mercedes. He, um, he'd send them a matchbox toy every month. And my son used to look forward to getting these little matchbox toys. He had a huge collection of them. You look forward to getting them every month. So if I turned around to him and said, mate, you're not going to get any more of those because I'm going to change where I buy my car, he would have had a fit. So another reason why I kept buying cars from Paul. Now, you can turn every discussion with a client into a great opportunity. Let's say you're talking to a customer. You say, how was your weekend? If they say, oh, geez, it was bloody stressful because my son was ill. It's a great opportunity for you to go and say, oh, your son, what's his name? David. How old is he? 13. Does he go to school locally? Yes, he goes to Viewpoint. Okay, there are three things I know about this kid and the family. And when we get off the phone, we know the kid's been ill. So we'll send the kid an appropriate gift with a note saying, I spoke to your dad and he told you, told me you were ill. I hope this makes you feel better. Now, we don't put it on any company letterhead, no business cards included, no anything, just Bob Pritchard. He knows who the hell it is. Dad gets home from work. What's that? Where'd you get that? I don't know. Somebody from your work or someone sent it to me. Who? Looks up the thing and it says, from Bob Pritchard. So does Dad think more of me than he did before? Of course he does. He now owes me one. So when he wants to buy what I'm selling, I've just increased my chance of getting the order dramatically. Same as if they just had an anniversary. The great thing about anniversaries and birthdays is they happen every year at exactly the same time. You know when they are. So a couple of weeks before the following year's anniversary, we send out a couple of theatre tickets or pay for a dinner for two. So does my potential client now like me more than they did before? Absolutely. So for a few bucks... I've greatly increased my opportunity to get a sale. Customers' expectations are higher, therefore satisfying customers is not enough. You know, you've got to really knock their socks off if you hope to maintain, firstly obtain and then maintain their business. They've got to get out of dealing with you saying, wow, that was fantastic. I've never had service like that before. You'll keep their business and grow yours. Now, my guest today is a great guy, David Frude. He spent almost 20 years working with medium to large corporations as an external consultant, very much like I do. And during this journey, he became interested in why employees do not tell their employers ideas about new products, markets, improvements to processes, etc. The um, employees just keep their mouth shut. So as a result of studying this within many corporations over two decades, he wrote The Thinking Corporation. It's very, very interesting. And I'll be back with David immediately. <laughs> I'll be back with David immediately after this break on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. 
Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. Now, this is the part of the show where we talk to extraordinary people, people that have enjoyed great success and that are doing well in the business world. It is very difficult to be successful in business. There are so many obstacles and uh, entrepreneurs have to wear so many different hats, which um, is challenging for the most experienced entrepreneur. 99% of businesses fail. And the reason is that um, most entrepreneurs don't have the variety of skill sets necessary to be able to manage the business to success. But there are a lot of really talented people in this world. I, I love to speak with them because they've so much that, that they can teach all of us. My aim in these interviews is to try and find out not only what they do and, and uh, how that can be of benefit to us, but what are the characteristics that they have that makes them successful? And how can each of us learn from them? What obstacles did they face and how did they overcome them? Now, my guest today is David Frude, who spent almost 20 years working with medium to large corporations as an external consultant. Sounds a bit like me. Projects were associated with protecting existing income, generating new income and improving sales force management and efficiencies. Our paths so far are very closely linked. In 1989, when David was working for a multinational technology company, he became interested in why employees do not tell their employers ideas about new products, marketings, and improvements to process. This is a big weakness in most companies. Um, employees who come up with great ideas and ways to, and they're the people at the coalface, they're the, they're the people that often can find solutions much more easily than management, but they don't pass it on. They keep it to themselves. And uh, in companies, too many companies encourage um, this mentality of I'm an executive and you're not. I'm smart. You do what I tell you to do. And uh, it really hurts businesses. So as a result of studying this within many corporations over a couple of decades, David wrote, the Thinking Corporation, and this book was then translated into a corporate change program that directly addresses the capacity of an organisation to innovate through capturing, evaluating and implementing employee-generated ideas. Um, maybe next week I'll go through some of the fantastic ideas that have been generated within companies by employees that have really changed companies totally changed their revenue sources, changed everything about them. So Steps to Becoming a Thinking Corporation, written in 2014, is a summary of how to transform any organisation into a thinking corporation. David, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on the Voice America Business Channel. How are you? Great, Bob. Uh, that's a pretty familiar kind of accent I can hear there, eh? It is a familiar accent. I'm... <laughs> Australian, obviously, um, but, I, but I've been here just on 30 years, so um, the accent doesn't go away, I guess, to, well, to a, to, you can't teach old dogs new tricks, or maybe I'm just too stupid to pick up another accent, I don't know. Well, it's a pretty interesting thing, because some people can hit these shores, and they come back within months with an American accent, but um, well done for 30 years, that's for yeah, sure. <laughs> thank you. Um but funnily enough, when I do go back to Australia, which isn't that often, people say to me, oh, geez, you picked up that Yankee twang, you know, and I go, what? <laughs> well, if you have, I can't hear it. No. Um, I noticed that you called your first book The Thinking Corporation, and now your company's bears the same name. So how did you arrive at The Thinking Corporation, and what does it mean to you? I mean, is it a thinking corporation, or is it the employees thinking yeah that's right well when you think about it uh, uh, <laughs> when you think about it uh, a corporation is made up of people anyway so if the corporation's thinking that means all the people are in it are thinking but uh, where it came from 
was you hit on it in the introduction that 1989. So ever since then, I've been scanning like, why is it that people just keep these great ideas to themselves? Why is it they tell some crazy guy that comes in from outside to help out with something specific when the answers are all there? And so I, I actually woke up, you know, early one morning, it was about three o'clock in the morning, uh, sometime in 2007 and started putting down what became the first book, The Thinking Corporation. I didn't give it that name for some time. It took a couple of months until I kind of worked out, well, what is it that we're actually trying to do? And what we're really trying to address here is that people go in and they start into work, I mean, and they start thinking about all sorts of things other than you know, what, what they're there for or what the organisation is doing. Um, and we know for, through just common sense that if you want something to happen, you need to start with a thought process, whether, whether it's, you know, you're putting your kids through uh, college or whether it's selling a house and buying a new one. It doesn't matter. Any project that we do starts off in our heads. So my thought was, why can't we get people that actually think in terms of what the corporation's doing and how to do things a little bit better or what else we could be doing while they're at work, more so than what they do now. And yeah. so the, the term thinking corporation came out of that, Bob. I guess um, what you said something earlier that I've had said to me a hundred times. Um, when I go into a corporation to address an issue or to look at check them out from front door to back door, um, often have employees say, you know, I've told management the same thing that you've told them 10 times and they've done nothing about it. You come in as an outsider that knows diddly squat about how we run our business and they listen to you. And that's a major problem, isn't it? Yeah, well, uh, for some reason or another, and I think all the study that I've done and thinking about it so much, um, we pretty much got the answers now but for some reason or another the history has told us that the employees ideas are discounted yeah and, and i think in your introduction you had it it goes back to the days it actually goes back to the days of the master slave relationship where people were going say a hundred or so years ago which has been slowly disappearing ever since but still there and it's uh, the the people that own the place or it started the place uh, they know everything about it. They know where it's going. They know why we do things. They know the customer base. They know all these things. And all the people that come in there to work, well, you just do what you're told. Yes. And when you're doing what you're told, you can go, but not until we tell you you can go. Uh, and I think it's a hangover from that, Bob. Also, companies don't incentivate people. If, if a guy on the factory floor comes up with an idea that saves the company $25 million a year, he's likely to get taken out to lunch. You know, there's, there's no incentive to, to come forward with great ideas and run the risk of being ridiculed or being told you're an idiot or whatever. Yeah, correct. There, there are some programs around now that you know, attempt to do it, but they still operate under the old master-slave kind of relationship. Um, and, the, and, and so... Yes, you're not rewarding people um, commensurate with the advantage to the organisation, which I think is uh, is going to turn people off. And I've actually seen it firsthand in a big mining company in our old country, Australia, uh, where the company was gaining insight from its engineers how to do things more efficiently, uh, which would gain hundreds of millions of dollars. And they were not literally... Uh, literally giving people, you know, uh, a ticket to the movies and like dinner out kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Uh, much more than that. And so, interestingly, the next few years that followed, the n number of ideas that they got in through the door actually started to decrease. Well, I wonder why, Bob. Yeah, sure. I heard a great expression the other day, and I, I love it. I don't know why. This just really tickled my fancy. Um, while the company pretends to pay me, I'll pretend to work. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think that is just such a great expression. I'd never heard it before in a 50 years of doing business, never heard it, love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what are some of the main business issues that you and your company are addressing? 
Look, there's some hefty issues in here uh, when you scratch the surface because when I when I came out of the the stage of actually developing this because I could see the 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 sheer potential in the ranks. You know, I call it the genius in the ranks. But until you start to think about and look into what that means, you don't really discover that it's it's huge in terms of benefits because one of the big things at the moment is the engagement figures. You just you just touched on it a while ago. The engagement figures are pretty woeful, actually. The, the average would be about 30% of people are engaged in the business. You have to look at the definitions to see what that means. 50% disengaged and get this, 20% actively disengaged, which means that they're working against the business. So one in five people that are working for a larger organisation are actually working against or undermining the business in some way. Now, imagine the impact that could have if these people, any of the one in five, or even the disengaged, but in particular the actively disengaged, were in touch with customers on a regular yeah. basis. Sure. If, they, if they are salespeople, if they're customer service people, if they go anywhere near customers, the company can be scratching its head thinking, why did we lose that customer? I don't know why they've gone somewhere else. Well, there's the answer. You know, somebody's saying the wrong thing to them. I think so, yeah. equally, um, internal customers, you know, yes. somebody somebody who's cancerous in the ranks can kill your business just be, without even seeing any external customers. Agree. Yeah. And so there, there is that. And so you get people coming into a group. If the group's a little bit toxic, then you're not going to fit in. If you want to get on with it, you've got a positive nature, then you've got problems. You might have staff turnover as a result of that. Staff turnover is another big issue, which is being addressed by this. You can keep people there by treating them a lot more fairly and having a great environment to work in. And, and another major thing that not only the companies are crying out for, but governments are crying out for, is sustainable innovation. Sure, and the, sure. way, the way that that's looked at at the moment is mostly got to do with research and development. Well, you know, there's a lot of sustainable innovation in the ranks of an organisation if you can tap into it. Um, so, and that's, and we're talking about over and above any R&D initiative, Bob. Yeah. Well, you know, just um, with legacy companies, in my experience, almost every aspect and every system in the company can be improved dramatically, relatively simply. In leg legacy companies I'm talking about, you know, things have just developed that have been done the same old way and... Yeah. There's much more efficient ways to do things today. You bet. And people can generally see it. Yeah. And yeah. the people that see it best are the people on the factory floor or in the office or whatever that are actually dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, the ones closest to the action, they, they know what needs to be done. But they, either nobody ever asks them or they, they couldn't be bothered telling them because they're not going to get anything for it. And by the way, somebody else will probably steal their idea. Yeah, well, yeah. Some, somebody else will undoubtedly, somebody up the chain will undoubtedly get credit for it. Mm, that's what I mean by stealing yeah. the idea. That, yeah. That's what generally happens. That's the hierarchy. Yeah. Um, so in general terms, what can organisations do to improve um, employee participation and, and reap the benefits associated with having people more engaged in business? Well, if you, if you look at it very generally, yeah, I really boils down to a couple of things, Bob. One is to improve the environment. Okay, so the environment, a lot of people would refer to that as culture. I'm talking about the total environment that people work in. Um, one of the things I use if I speak about this is like a sliding scale saying, you, you've got to imagine that down one end of this scale is are the conditions where people would say to each other and themselves, I wouldn't tell this organization anything. <clears throat> and then right up the other end of the scale, is I love this place, uh, I, I like coming in and out of here every, every day, I like what they do, and I'd, I'd be prepared to help any way I can. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that's that's one thing, so improve the environment. We've actually got a survey that goes across 17 criteria that helps identify exactly which areas are dragging us down and which areas can, can bring it up to, to the point where people will actually be up that end of the scale where they want to help. That's one thing. The second thing, is a company needs to institutionalise the process of how do we help? Because if you've got the environment under control and it's as good as it can possibly be, people are happy to be there 
then you can ask the question, which I've done over and over again. So what would you do if you've got a great idea on how to improve things or a new product service, uh, a new industry the company can get into? What would you do? And mostly people don't really know the, the answer to that. So they need to institutionalize a process for harvesting and reviewing and implementing the ideas that come through, Bob. Right. I understand that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. I guess another major problem is just resistance from middle management. I mean, people <coughs> people in middle management, it seems to me, are so terrified about losing their jobs and being replaced by technology or whatever that I can imagine that... Um, ideas from the factory floor or ideas from management below them would be resisted more often than not. Yeah, that that can it can easily happen. So how do you how do you address that? I mean, you know, it's pretty hard fighting against your your boss, isn't it? And if you go oh. over your, if you go over their head, you're likely to be in even more trouble. Look, I I think look that I really do believe, and when we've structured our whole process this way, that um, as far as the ideas from the ground up are concerned, you yep. need to you need to sidestep middle management. And so, whatever whatever review process, whatever evaluation process is put in place for the ideas, needs to report right up to as close as possible, if not the top, as it can. Um, because it's been my experience, and obviously yours as well, that where you get the intervention from middle management, uh, it doesn't work. It simply right. won't work. Um, so we need to sidestep it. That's as simple as it is, and uh, a straightforward answer, Bob, but, you know, that's, that's the way it has to happen to work properly. That's after you've instituted some change, but for somebody sitting at home now are in the car listening to this program and sitting there saying, you know, I could improve our efficiency at the office a million percent by doing X, Y, Z. How do they go about getting heard initially? Well, before they do anything about changing the whole process. Yeah. Um, that's pretty difficult because that is the, that's the problematic circumstances that drove me to doing what I'm doing. Right. Is it? We're talking about the the current circumstances, which more times than not doesn't work. Um, there are some companies around which are much you know more open about these kind of things and more to work for, and do have some sort of process in place that's uh, uh, in fairness to all parties, the the uh, the individual as well as the company, uh, but they're few and far between. So that person out there that's thinking, I know what they can do to help, you need to take a look at how the organisation will probably treat that idea right now. And um, if you think there's some risk, if they think that there's risk that the uh, idea could be stolen, particularly if it's a it's a big idea and involves intellectual property, um, then, you know, you'd have to think twice about that. But the thing about implementing the process that we've got is that it safeguards all those things for the uh, for the employee. Do you find that um, um, technology companies or new age companies? I'm not even sure what to what to call them. But um, companies over the last decade, for example, are much better at, ex- at encouraging and accepting uh, employee recommendations and changes than are the older style legacy companies yeah i think i think what you've got is it's the group of people that are coming through the younger employees are far better at sharing ideas and collaborating than than i would ever been for example working yeah. for a large corporation um so that that whole process is opening up a lot uh, in terms of the collaboration side, uh, I'm more I'm more about well uh, again for the for the big end uh, ideas. I'm about promoting entrepreneurship from within the ranks. As so, we might go right down to um, uh, finding a more efficient way to go about a particular process or uh, some form of cost saving. But then you can you can scale it right up to a big idea for a, a new product a new service, a new market, things like that, 
which um, which that taps into the entrepreneurship from within the ranks of the corporation. Sure. And we're actually all capable of doing that. Uh, we think of entrepreneurs slash entrepreneurs, as per your program introduction, as being like just some individual. Individuals, either people that we know well in the airline business and the computer business, or the other way we look at it is startup organisations, one or a few people beavering away and getting something started. But everyone inside a corporation, given the right environment and encouragement, can become an entrepreneur. And that's, that's pretty exciting when it comes to what you could do with an organisation. Yeah. So... There's, there's. I'm sure you conduct surveys um, about um, what happens when you implement um, these programs. Things like the increase in participation and and submission of ideas. What's the increase in the number of ideas that are submitted? What sort of value does that have to a company? Uh, these ideas in the main accepted or not accepted and how much difference do most of these ideas have on a company i know that's about six questions in one but you know yeah i know what i know what you're getting at though and and if uh, any of the listeners out there want to google harvard for example harvard's done a lot of work in the area that you're talking about now is what happens when you do engage employees so if you googled harvard employee engagement, um, then you come up with some articles there. I've done it and read through them. They, they will generally talk about, uh, you know, those figures we mentioned earlier, 30% engaged, 50% disengaged, 20% actively disengaged. They'll generally talk about making an improvement to those figures. And, right. um, and, and But the bottom line of it all is what companies are looking for, and that's, increased profits so the the harvard research has shown significant increases in profits of companies who have got greater than normal engagement levels increased share price and these are significantly increased as well not just little bits but increased share prices um improved efficiencies um, and so that's just like who if you're a senior executive out there or a ceo who wouldn't want to achieve those sorts of things sure you can turn on extra profits. You can turn on your share price, you know, increasing on a regular basis uh, and efficiencies year on year um, just as a result of, of working on a critical figure of 30% engaged and thinking to yourself, well, what could that be? Because every time we push that up a percentage point or two, we're getting extra profit, we're getting extra share value. In other words, extra value with the company. And we're improving our bottom line all the time. So it's pretty good. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. What um, what sort of businesses, um, are there any particular style of businesses that benefit more from um, the implementation of, a, of a, an incentive or a whatever scheme to um, improve employee um, input into management and systems is it any type of industry is it manufacturing industry is it office type industry is it retail is is there any particular style of industry that benefits most i don't think so i i think that the the main the main thing is that they're past the threshold of needing to institutionalize things because when you think about it bob the the smaller organizations are nimble enough to be able to identify that, yes, our employees have got a lot more to contribute, we're going to do something about this. And generally speaking, they can. Right. But, but when a company gets to a certain number of employees, the only way to get things done is to institutionalise it. And they do it with things like CRM, for example. You know, this, this is how we keep, this is the way we do things around here. You know, and the same thing needs to be done with this kind of process. And, um, and I've, I've studied this and found that it was around 200 employees. So around 200 employees up to 1,000 employees is probably where our sweet spot would be in terms of people that would be interested in talking to us about what we do. Um, outside of that, the, the bigger ones, yes, they could do with something um, other than what they're doing. But generally speaking, they will look at it and think that 
well, we're doing something about moving towards this result. Um, and it's a lot more difficult to talk to them in any event. So probably the 200 to 1,000 employees doesn't really matter about the industry, um, although all our process is currently in English only. So where we've got a large proportion of the workforce is non-English speaking, that would be an issue right, right. now. Yeah. Right. And so what do you call your process and what makes it a different or what makes it a better solution that, than other solutions that might be out there? Well, right now, I've, um, I, I simply call it high-performance employee participation. <laughs> that, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what it's called for now. Uh, and what makes it different? Well, let me think. The, the things that really make it different, I think, is it's based on very practical experience. And you've got the same sort of experience. It's, it's based on two decades of actually observing, making notes, and trying to figure out why employees don't let their employers know about their ideas and what needs to be done to rectify that. So it's very practical. It's not out of some laboratory, you know, that that has no kind of uh, practical background. So that's one thing. Um, it's simple. You know, if you talk to HR directors or business owners or, or, or directors or CEOs, they can understand this straight away. Um, there's there's no rocket science in it, um, but the whole thing actually works well together and delivers the result. Um, and I think that the third thing, now that you mention it, the, the third thing is having the benefits all around. And you brought this up earlier, is that if people are going to uh, contribute their results, in fact, one step before that, before people are going to pr uh, present their results, they they want to know that they're going to be treated fairly in terms of uh, remuneration, that if it is a big idea that's got, you know, lots of benefit, lots of money uh, that's benefiting the company, then they, they would like uh, some of that at least for a, a period of time. And also, if it's a big idea that's got intellectual property involved, well, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people will hang back on that idea because they'll think, well, maybe I could do that myself and uh, I could, I could, you know, risk everything in the house and all the savings and <laughs> get out there and give it a go myself. Yeah. Uh, much better to do it from within, from within the four walls of a corporation that's already got all those things. And you're not going to get sued. <laughs> yeah, and you're not going to get sued, exactly. That's a, that's a major problem. Big um, problem. So do you actively solicit business or do people just come to you? Well, at, at present, we're, we're starting this one because this is a spin-off from what I've always been doing right. and all, all that work was done in uh, well, Australia and international. I've done, done consulting work here as well. But I'm here now on a, an E2 visa, which is under the Australia-US Free sure. Trade Agreement, um, which is a four-year and renewable. And right. so I'm here for, this, for the purpose of starting this. We're actually looking for any pilot installations to work with very, very closely as the first stage towards rolling this out nationally. And uh, that would be any organisation. It's got 200 to 1,000 uh, employees that, that, you know, from what we've talked about today, the people listening are actually interested in, in finding out more, but we'd love to hear from them. Okay, so you, you go... Let's say a company um, says, okay, I want to talk. What do you do first? You go into the company and you talk to employees and find out what the impediments are or how do you, how do you go about it? I mean, management's probably not going to tell you. No, well, the first thing is, uh, you know, is a bit of a trade secret here, but the first thing, Bob, is there needs to be the right attitude towards the employees with the senior management right now. Because if that if that doesn't exist, then this whole process doesn't work. Um, because it has to be reinforced by management, who actually do believe that there is a lot more value in the employees than what they're currently seeing. If they believe that and they want it to do it for the right reasons, then we can make it work. So you know that's that's the number one thing. The second thing that we would do would be to run the survey, the employee survey. It's a web-based survey, yep. and that gives us the results across that seven criteria um, as to where the business stands now along that continuum 
I wouldn't tell this organisation anything till I love this place, I'm willing to help, how, to, how can I help? That tells us that. Yep. Uh, so we'd run that, we'd go through the results with them and work out some sort of plan of attack as to how can we address some of these things. Um, so that would be the starting point. Well, it just seems... To me, it just seems so logical. And the spin-offs, I understand, you, you you know, you get more enthusiastic employees, you get higher productivity, you get better bottom line, you get improved share price. It's a win-win-win-win-win-win-win-win for everybody. Um, so is the reason that more people aren't doing it because they don't think about it or they just think they're impervious to improvement? <laughs> yeah, I... Look, I think that companies are that busy peddling away doing what they do. It's um, it's something that always takes a bit of a back seat because if they start, if they were to look at it and get serious about it, then it's a serious change program. You know, you can't change it in an instant. So therefore, they've got to commit, be committed to it, and be committed to it for, for some period of time. The benefits are huge, but you've got to get to that stage. I also think that it's got to do with. Um, the evolution of the relationship between employee and employers goes on and on. Yep. And, you know, it's, we're just at that point now where people are starting to think very seriously about doing what we're suggesting here. Up until then, it, it was, you know, even just a little while ago, it's still very much master-slave and we're, we weren't quite there. But we're on top of it right now, Bob. Good. Yeah. David, thank you very much for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really appreciate it. Now, if you would like to find out more about David Frood and The Thinking Corporation, go to thethinkingcorporation.com. That's thethinkingcorporation.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network right after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard straight talking absolutely no bullshit business radio show and voice america business channel the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs this week being brought to you brought to you by our from our jeez <laughs> relatively new studio on hollywood boulevard in los angeles where entertainment meets technology john scholl the founder and president of the Service Quality Institute. He's a brilliant customer service strategist. And he's also on the advisory board of the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management. Now, I read an article of his a couple of months ago, which I thought was great. Part of it. Every business, small or large, should understand what skills their customer-facing employees need and should know how to speak to customers in order to foster a positive and long-standing relationship. You've got to put yourself in the customer's shoes and do things for them the way that you'd want people to do things for you. And all businesses have customers and have a customer-facing experience every day. In fact, most businesses have literally hundreds of interactions with customers every day and, in fact, have multiple interactions with the same customer. There are salespeople, project managers, cashiers, waitresses, waiters, presidents, vice presidents, delivery and service people, people in the finance department. Every person in the business almost is dealing with customers in one way or another. And all of these people will mean the difference between a company that is perceived positively and a company that appears not to care. Now, don't forget, 68% of customers do not repeat business from a company because they don't believe that the company cares enough about their business. So this means the difference between having a positive brand equity, creating word of mouth, which leads to repeat business, increased margins, low acquisition cost, new customers, 
and a sustainable business. And great customer interaction, it, it's really all about communication. If you're going to have a chance to win customer satisfaction, you need to know what the customer thinks. Your customer, your customer, not the average customer who populates national economic statistics. Forget that, what your customer thinks. Now, Costco is in the people business. One of the most customer-centric companies around is Costco. Their strategy is to provide members with a broad range of high-quality merchandise at prices that are consistently lower than can be obtained through traditional wholesalers and match merchandisers and supermarkets and super centres, and it carries only merchandise in which it can provide members significant cost savings. In 2015, Costco had 81 million members, and they're all paying 50 bucks, or in my case, 110 bucks a year. You know, that's a lot of hooch coming in. It's billions. And Costco was the first company to grow from zero to three billion in sales in under six years. For fiscal year ending August 31, 2012, the company's sales totaled 100 billion, (laughs) with a B. Costco's number one in the specialty score industry, with a score of 84 in the 2014 Fortune 500. Given that about 75% of Costco's operating profit comes from membership fees, literally every decision Costco makes comes down to what does the customer want? What does our members want? And members are evidently happy. They have a renewal rate of over 90%. So the keys to customer satisfaction are firstly, listen and solve customers' problems fast. Dramatically shorten the time it takes to complete any task for customers and co-workers. Secondly, give customers your opinion. Not one read off a piece of paper. They don't want to hear stupid rules that are in place. They want to hear from a person that is empowered to make decisions on their behalf. Thirdly, be proactive to find the solutions. Customers look for people to solve a problem and do it quickly. Fourthly, be reliable. Customers want to feel comfortable dealing with somebody they know and can count on to handle a situation. Fifth, take charge. Customers want professional expertise, someone to give guidance and direction. Sixth, ask customers for feedback and let them know it is important. It makes them feel important and makes them believe their opinions matter. Seventh, Be an advocate for the customer. Customers are looking for a consultant. They want you to listen to them and provide them with a solution. Eight, have a positive attitude. Customers do not want to hear about how how bad your day was. Focus on them and help the customer solve their problems. The American Management Association found in a survey that high-growth companies stay in touch with their customers, set a customer maintenance budget and willingly spend the money to maintain these customers. They know their customers and they keep their knowledge fresh. They learn things like whether the customers are satisfied, what they bought and what they didn't buy and why. They learn what they came in expecting to buy and what they expected to pay. They learn preferences and how they're changing over time. So great customer service is incredible. So that unbeatable value proposition on quality products and customer services inspired over 90% of Costco's 81 million cardholders worldwide to renew their memberships each year. Now, that's how you give customer service. Please tell your friends to listen to this show. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. In the meanwhile, remember... If you're not really pushing the envelope, if you're not living right on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard. I look forward to your company again next week. We'll broadcast again from our new studio on Hollywood Boulevard, where entertainment meets technology. 
You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.